Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of Those People, a podcast with people, about people. I'm your host, Mitch Gaines. As always, you can find me anywhere on the internet you want to find me, at Mitch Gaines. That's Gaines with Y, because I'm a little bit gay. No E, because we stopped doing E in the 90s. I want to jump in here at the top of this final episode of Volume 2, Creative People, uh, and apologize to everybody out there for the inconsistency, I guess is probably the best word, of our release of episodes of this volume. Uh, we'd originally planned on continuing to put out episodes every single week, as we did in Volume 1. Uh, however, the schedule's gotten a little dicey here. Uh, during the primary election, we've been all over the place interviewing supporters, candidates, organizers, uh, campaign staffers, people of all ilks, uh, trying to get a, a good read on the election. Uh, if you want some more updates on that, obviously, I'm, I'm live posting all of my feedback about uh, the race here on Twitter. Uh, I will also be releasing an audio diary of my trip to South Carolina, uh, where I had a chance to go canvas for the Pete Buttigieg campaign and meet a whole bunch of different supporters down here in South Carolina. Uh, the one thing I can tell you up front at the top here is is, boy, is the South different. Uh, I never had a chance to get down South, even though my family is from down here. Uh, this was my first trip down here, and uh, it's been an adventure so far. That's that's for sure. So more to come on that. Uh, but primarily, I just want to jump in here to apologize, like I said before, for the inconsistency in the releases. Uh, we are going to obviously put out this final episode of Volume 2 here on Creative People, and then we'll be back with a whole bunch of bonus episodes over the next uh, probably four to eight weeks or so before we roll into Volume 3 and Volume 4 later this year. Uh, we will be back uh, in Volume 3 with another candidate series, focusing primarily on New York City candidates. We'll also have a few bonus episodes in there with some more candidates in my home state of Massachusetts. Uh, and then we'll be carrying on to volume four, which is uh, a, a bit of a secret for you guys. So I'll, uh, I'll, re- I'll reserve that for later and uh, let you figure that out when we get there. So with that said, uh, again, my apologies for the inconsistencies. My apologies uh, that you haven't been getting this pod every week like you'd become accustomed to at the beginning of this show. Uh, and we look forward to getting things back on schedule in the very, very near future. I also want to make a final note here about this episode, the final episode of Volume 2, Creative People, with Ryan Estrada. Uh, he's a graphic novelist who's published dozens of his own works, and also contributed some of the classics that you may be familiar with, like Garfield, Star Wars, a whole bunch of other things. Uh, we did not have a chance to edit this episode before putting it out, so there might be a few extra ums or ahs, a couple of pauses in there, maybe some dead spots in the conversation that we typically edit out. As I mentioned, while I've been on the road, it's been a little difficult to get to the editing portion of things, uh, and our typical engineer has been off for a few weeks, so that's part of the delay as well. Uh, So we will be back, as I mentioned, with more future episodes. We're going to put this one out uh, unedited, since it's pretty family-friendly, and Ryan is a professional, and uh, (laughs) kept the the stories uh, pretty on point. Uh, And so I hope you enjoy this episode. We talk about everything from international politics to being an American, moving around the world, and obviously finding your place in the world as a creator and an artist, which is what this series is all focused on. Uh, so I hope you really do enjoy it, and I look forward to having you guys back here as loyal listeners in the future as we dig back into our regularly scheduled episodes every Thursday. And until then, I am Mitch Gaines, you are whoever you are, and we are all those people. Take care. Those people are always late and always complain. Those people always think others are to blame. Yo, people think they should be the first in line. Those people always do the time. checking out another episode of Those People, a podcast about people with people. As usual, I am your host, Mitch Gaines. You can find me at Mitch Gaines just about anywhere on the internet that I want to be found. If this is your first time checking out the show, thank you, thank you, thank you. We're so happy to have you on board. 
Those People is a show with people about people, as I mentioned, where we explore all the labels others give us and that we give ourselves. Every episode, we sit down with a different guest and we interview them about their stories, their successes, their struggles, all the important S words, really. But most importantly, we kick it with them about the people involved. So if you love it, we'd love you to go and go tell a friend. If you hate it, we hate you. And please kindly shut the fuck up forever. I'm just kidding about that last part, but if you do hate the show for real, shoot me a note at mitchgains at gmail.com. You can tell me what you hated. Maybe we'll do better next time. Maybe we won't. As always, I also want to take a quick second to remind all of you who do love the show or just some of the people that we have on this show, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. It really does help other people discover the show. Platforms we're available on currently include Spotify, Stitcher, Anchor, Pocket Cast, my personal favorite, Radio Public, and a whole bunch more. If you happen to be a Google or an Apple listener and you like the show, it'd mean a lot to us if you could rate and review the podcast, uh, but only if you like the show. You can save the hate takes for Twitter, and again, you can find me there at Mitch Gaines. That's Gaines with a Y because I'm a little bit gay. G-A-Y-N-S. My guest today is Ryan Estrada, who is an artist, an author, and an adventurer by his own words. He's written literally countless comics and graphic novels. Uh, Recently, he drew for Star Trek, Popeye, Garfield, uh, but also, as I mentioned, writes his own graphic novels, including the ever-popular Learn to Read Korean in 15 Minutes. As somebody who has struggled to learn seven different languages at all the attempts in my life, I very much look forward to giving that a thumb through and seeing if I can do any better with the Korean. Uh, He first submitted his work to papers at the ripe old age of six years old, uh, became a mainstay writing comics around 16 years old. Uh, So he joins me today to talk about that journey, which has now spanned several continents, about a million websites, and some of comics' most treasured IP. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Thank you very much. I don't know how treasured anything I make is, but I sure do make a lot of it. Well, so I, I, you mentioned, obviously, one of the, the nice credits there is like, it, I feel like if you drew on Garfield, that's a, a pretty highly treasured IP. That's, that is maybe the, the most iconic for kids of this age. I, you know, obviously oh, yeah, there like, you go. When the, I get to work on other people's stuff. <laughs> Well, that's that. That that is kind of how it goes. So I'm I'm curious about that actually, uh, and so I'm, I'm happy to get a chance to kind of get into all of this because graphic writing in general. It, it, help me out there. What is the proper term for that? So I don't sound like a complete novice as I cater this interview. Just just writing comics writer writing comics. All right, uh, and so I, like that. I feel. Uh, my hope here is to do kind of a, a series of interviews with a, a bunch of different types of writers. Uh, but obviously writing for graphic novels and writing for comics is a, a very different kind of style of authoring. Uh, and so I, I guess I want to eventually end up there, but I want to start off with uh, two things that uh, I guess two questions I start off every interview with. One, first and foremost, most importantly, is what is your conversational safe word? And by that, uh, it's a thing we do here on the show, similar to a sexual safe word, a word you can use anytime I ask a question that's super uncomfortable, we can territory you don't want to talk about you just say that word and we'll change directions uh let me see let's just go with uh pumpkin because the first thing came to mind i don't know why but people really have an affinity for p words for their conversational safe word the pumpkin i've gotten two pineapples somebody else had something with a p it's uh, apparently that's the way to go all right so pumpkin will be it and then the second question i always ask everybody uh and from my understanding for you this is a little bit of a difficult answer so i guess this is a good place to start but where where are you from uh because it sounds like in in getting to where you are now you've been a lot of places uh so where are you from and where's this whole journey kind of start for you well, I was born in West Bloom, uh, near West Bloomfield, Michigan. I guess I see. I, I'm already starting messing up. I don't know what. That's not even where I was born. I was born near Detroit. Uh, I grew up in Pontiac and just around Michigan, uh, and kind of that's where I was uh, up until about college when I 
uh, didn't know what I was going to do. I had studied animation. Uh, and then the year I graduated was the year the entire industry got laid off. So I just started traveling the world. And I've been many, many places since then. But it all started in Michigan. And you were you were in Michigan until you graduated and like went, went off in pursuit of animation. Yes. Okay. And so what is, you're actually the second person from the Detroit area we've had on this season. So uh, I'm, I'm interested for the compare and contrast. What is, what was like childhood like in Detroit, in Michigan? Um, well, I, uh, you know, I was in, uh, like I said, West Bloomfield, which is like one of the, uh, one of the zip codes, or one of the area codes that Eminem will like make fun of in his rap battles. <laughs> uh, so I, but I was like, West Bloomfield is known for being like one of the richest places in the world, but I was like in the oh, wow. outskirts of that where like uh, I was the part of West Bloomfield, but like the rich people in West Bloomfield, they literally ran a pipe to lower their water table into my backyard. And uh, like, it was just an, a common thing when I grew up that once a year, our basement would just fill halfway with water because the rich people wanted to lower their water table again. Oh, um, but uh, I mean, yeah, it was, just you know it was the suburbs you go i got the kids playing hockey in the street yelling car every time a car comes by kids riding their bikes um that that kind of thing and i i was just the nerdy kid who just was obsessed with making comics as you said from six years old and so that was my main thing is just wandering out in the woods having adventures and making comics and trying to get published from a very young age and so are just how did your family end up there? Were you guys like also super rich or was that like you guys were rich at one point and then, you know, wanted to cling on to the life in West Bloomfield or like was aspirational and kind of, like, because from the side of it, like you said, you're on kind of the, the outskirts of this uh, white collar society and having grown up in a, in a fairly similar fashion, a working class town that had a lot of, you know, very rich elements to it. Uh, it, it can feel kind of isolating in that way. So I'm curious, like what was, I, I'm sure at six, five, four years old, you didn't have much say in that, but what was kind of your, how did your family end up there? Uh, like the area we ended up in, like the, the school I went to elementary in was called uh, Four Towns. And it's just that because we were right next to like this place where four different areas intersected. And I guess my whole family just kind of growing up there. My, my grandfather moved to uh, uh, the U.S. from Mexico and he settled in Pontiac, Michigan. And everybody just kind of like came from different areas around there. And we just ended up in that little four towns area that and we happened to be on the side of the border that made us sound like we were in, in the millionaire section, but we weren't. And it, it wasn't, it wasn't that my parents wanted to live in that area. That's just the side of the border we happened to fall upon. And it was because we were so close to the border that they're, they're like, well, that's uh that's where we'll, that's where we'll dump our sewage. <laughs> Well, that, that I yeah no that that sounds a, a bit nightmarish, but at the same time, at least like you you do get that I guess tangential access to privilege. I, I talk about that a lot in my own life. It's just like I you know not, not as somebody who's born of much privilege, but who has continuously had tangential access to a lot of privilege. Uh, I didn't mm -hmm. fully appreciate how much that did for me, uh, and so I, I guess even just little things like having the ability to instead of worry about like hey like you know where's my my family gonna like eat from or like you know what do I need to go to college for being able to be you know creative at six years old and drawing comics or writing poetry and kind of having that outlet so I guess where you know obviously you start there very young kind of who who put that idea in your head like where do you even hear about drawing comics are you just like you know watching cartoons on Sunday morning being like well I guess I'll try that or like how's that come about for a six-year-old yeah I don't know it's it's one of those things that was 
my plan before I have memories. <laughs> like my my mother has to fill in the gaps. Like, yeah, you were like right out of the womb, ready to make comics. And so that's just what I've always wanted to do. And as you mentioned, the privilege, like I had the privilege of being able to pursue that. And I had a family that just never said that's silly or like any, you know, like for a six-year-old to be making submission packets to newspapers. And I like went to the library and figured out like, oh, this is how many strips you have to include. This is the format. And like, no one said that's really dumb. They're not going to hire a six-year-old. I had the privilege of having people that supported me and were able to support me and just let me do it. And I kept bothering them until they hired me when I was 16. So, uh, yeah, it's just, that's always what I wanted and I don't know where it came from and I can't remember where it began. Well, let me, let me ask you this then. Maybe this will, uh, in a Freudian way, got us to some of, some of the inspiration. What was the, what was the first comic? What what was that six-year-old submission? Ryan, you still there? Yep, I heard. I, I heard what was the Freudian, and then you cut out. Oh, sorry about that. Uh, I, I was curious. What was that? What was that first comic? Like, what was the comic you submitted when you were six? Uh, the first comic I submitted was called Worry Wart and Company, and it was uh, just about this this family of like anthropomorphic dogs. There was the nerdy dad and the the troublemaking son and the the baby genius, and they just. Uh, yeah, they just had little adventures. And I, uh, once that got rejected, I just kept developing it and kept making spinoffs. And uh, it, it evolved into, into other things. The first one that I did get published was called uh, um, Pet Peeves. And that was uh, a comic about an orange cat who was too lazy to chase mice. So not the most original comic in the world. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's, that's what I thought was original at the time. Oh, and I guess one of my questions here is like, how are you writing this at six? Like, I I consider myself a, a fairly gifted storyteller and like wrote a lot when I was a child, but I can't remember at six years old being able to like write full stories, let alone also be able to illustrate them. So it was like somebody helping you write the storyline there. Or like, how how are you bringing that to fruition? No, I I just I wrote terrible terrible jokes and I made <laughs> comics out of them. I uh, no like it wasn't like anyone was pushing me to, I didn't really have any other artists in the family that were pushing me to do it. Like, they're just like, all right, this is a weird thing he likes to do. And that's what I like to do. I made up stories. I, I learned the format. I did four panel gags. I, I made sure, you know, I did the Sunday strips and I made sure it had the first two panels that they could crop out because I knew that in newspapers, some newspapers published the whole thing. Some cropped the first two panels. I, I, I learned the whole, uh, the whole way the system works. So forgive me if this comes across as like a, a douchey question, but it begs the question then. I am very much a generalist. I take that approach to most things in my life. I'm fascinated when I meet people like yourself who's just like, no, I knew from literally before I had memories, like this is what I was born to do. Do you Did you do like anything else during your childhood? Or are you just like in a room drawing and like studying newspapers from like six to 20? Um, yeah, I, I did lots of stuff. Like when in school, I was a member of every club uh when in in high school literally i i got my yearbook that i helped edit and noticed myself in group picture and was like oh man i was the vice president of that club i forgot to ever go again <laughs> after i got elected like i just did everything i was obsessed with like um i had to get the the straight a's i had to get perfect attendance um i actually 
the the final year of uh, high school, I I had perfect attendance the whole time, and then my grandmother died, and I I convinced my art teacher to consider my grandma's funeral a field trip, so that I wouldn't lose my perfect attendance. And I was just, I was just so obsessed about being involved in everything, so it would look good on a college resume. And then I went to art school and find out they do not care at all. I I was gonna say that's that's kind of like the running joke of art school, right? It's like none of those things, like your extracurriculars, your SAT scores, like your GPA, none of that's gonna end up mattering. Yeah, I, I was unaware of that for four <laughs> years. All right, and so during- I, was, I was in. I took every advanced placement class my school had, and like at everything, and then I found out that it was completely wasted. So you you were kind of born to be a genius, whether or not it was going to be channeled into illustration or something else was really all that was left to be decided. You you were very much on this track, like, I, I'm going to be successful at all of the things, and then I will figure out what adulthood kind of holds for me. Yeah, I wouldn't say born to be a genius. I was born to, like, do everything I could that I thought geniuses might do. That doesn't mean I was one. I was just obsessed with, uh, you know finding a way to find success so I could be a professional cartoonist. That was just my whole thing. I, I will say as somebody who has been tangential to a lot of success and, uh, you know, maybe a genius here or there, I find a lot more frequently it's just the people who are willing to do all of the things that put you in position to become a genius, not the people who are really born that way. It's like if, if you're going to if you do all the things that geniuses do, you'll eventually find the thing you're a genius at. You know, what I mean, like it's a, a yeah. lot of it's behavioral change. Uh, so I guess yeah, well, the thing is, like, the, you know, as you mentioned, I, I did a lot of like perfect attendance and all that and like d- d- taking I classes but i also did a lot of like setting myself on fire and like (laughs) i did several times so like i was very clearly very dumb also (laughs) i want to make sure that's clear here when i'm sorry i gotta deviate here when you give me something like that when you say setting yourself on fire what do you mean by that several times yeah um (laughs) it was was a thing i I did a lot on holidays uh the the big one was one year i I was making a halloween costume and i wanted to make a really scary one i wanted to be an accident victim for halloween and uh it's it's a long story but basically i i decided to singe the edge of my shirt so it looked like i'd been in a fire and the shirt just went up in flames (laughs) and i and it melted so quickly I couldn't take the shirt off because it was melted in my skin. And I, yes. I remembered stop, drop, and roll, but I I did it once, and I'm like, well, that didn't work. So I just <laughs> ran around a while and melted, <laughs> melted myself off. Yeah, so, um, so yeah, I I, uh, I still have a whole uh, burn scar shoulder from, from the incident. That's my permanent Halloween costume. And uh, that I, much younger, I did I did a similar thing on, on Christmas where I, I didn't know you weren't supposed to lean against the fire barrels at the uh, – the the christmas tree lot but it it was a recurring thing (laughs) so you're you're an accidental arsonist this entire time as well basically yeah (laughs) all right only myself i only set myself on fire and in fairness, I, I I joke about this a lot on this podcast, how, like, I am obviously black, but I was also, like, raised and grew up around pretty much all white people. Uh, and so recently, a couple of years ago, I started growing out my dreadlocks, and something I see black women do all the time uh, is use a lighter to seal the ends of their hair when they get, like, braids or twists mm-hmm. and things like that. And so I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Just light it. Fine. And I had all this product in my hair that I, like, had never, you know, looked at any of the ingredients of or anything. Uh, and I went to go seal the ends of my dreadlocks, and my whole head just, like, caught fire, and I... You know, I had a, a head of flames in my car and I was, I'm just thinking like what people driving down the road are like looking at me like what the hell is going on in that guy's car right now. Uh, so I can, I can relate. Lighting yourself on fire is something of a consistent theme for the podcast. You're you're right on brand. 
Uh, All right. I I want to I want to circle back a little bit just on the family stuff. So you mentioned you're the only artist in the family. How how big is your family? I guess we'll start. Uh, well, I had I yeah I had uh, one younger brother and one younger sister. Okay, and then just you three and your parents. Yep. All right. Cool. Uh, and so, what are your I, I guess what are your parents like? What did what did they do? Obviously, not artists. Yeah, my uh, my father uh, for most of my childhood worked as an ATM technician. He was the guy that uh, that drove around and uh, refilled the ATMs. Uh, my mother, uh, through much of my childhood, like worked at a lot of like stores, did the midnight shift, uh, you know, at the the lawn and garden at the local Meyer or various things like that. I uh, I always wonder like. <laughs> I'm, this is not meant to be an accusatory thing against your father at all, but like, how do you ever trust somebody with that job of just like riding around with like literally hundreds of thousands of just like unmarked bills to, to go fill ATMs with? Uh, but now I know a guy who does that apparently. <laughs> yeah, it was really weird. Like he uh, he wasn't like they they made him carry like a gun. He's like not a gun guy, and he's just like I'm not gonna use it. Like if anybody wants some money, I'll be like take it. I'm not gonna <laughs> get in a shootout after someone else's money that's insured. I, one of, one of just like the craziest things to me about American society is this idea of paid armed security. Like how much do you need to pay somebody that they're going to take a bullet for you? Cause like, yeah. I, I don't know what that number is, but it, it isn't a number that we offer security guards. I know that. Like if you paid me 200 grand a year, sorry, Ryan, like you're going to die if somebody tries to shoot you. I'm getting the fuck out of the way. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's exactly what he said. He's just like, I'll carry it cause I have to carry it. But uh, I'm just, this, you know, he's just got like hundreds of thousands of dollars in his trunk. And if it's like if somebody wants to go in that trunk, they can go right ahead. Well, uh, I'm, I'm sure some people in Michigan 20 years ago really wish this podcast was already out then. Because uh, that would have been some useful information to a lot of people. I, I hope your I hope your pops is retired now. Uh, I, I I guess I'm curious. What do what do your siblings do? I I, I does not sound like that's like a, a family lineage where your dad was like, Hey, like you guys should all grow up to, to be ATM techs and like be packing heat day to day. It does not seem like mm-hmm. that was like the goal. So what are your, what are your siblings into? Well, uh, my, my, uh, my younger sister, she, uh, is, uh, uh, a biologist. She studies animals, uh, for various things. I, I once went to meet her when she was studying hyenas in Africa and now she's working uh, to preserve the, the the Great Lakes in Michigan. Uh, and my my brother, he's he's sort of the opposite of both of us. My sister and I are both animal loving vegetarians. My my brother is the big hunter, fisher, fisherman guy with all the guns and uh, and like that's what he loves to do every weekend. He does like a, um, like construction development in Detroit, but his his main thing is is hunting and fishing. So you guys went more, uh, I guess you could say, like the urbanized, e- you know, eco-friendly route, and he is more of the, I, I want to be immersed in nature kind of uh, a, a outdoorsman yep. kind of a- approach to it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're, we're very opposite when it comes to that. Are you guys all still close? Like, do you guys, like, get together for holidays yeah. and everything? Hey, I mean, I live in South Korea, so well, we, don't, yeah, we a- don't get together as much <laughs> as we like, but every time I'm back, it's 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 lovely. Uh, and so I, I, 
how much are they kind of shaping who you are as a young person? Because you mentioned, obviously, you guys are all fairly different. You're the only artist in the family. You kind of had this this drive and this passion very young. Uh, so are they kind of, you know, other than just kind of supporting and being like, cool, go do your weird little thing or whatever? Or are they, you know, pretty active in the support of you kind of growing this kind of career as a young person? Um, I think just as, as far as the things I've gone on to do with my life, I think I was just so driven from you know, the, before I have memories that like, I don't think anyone could have changed my goals in life. But, um, I think, you know, my family did kind of shape like my, my personality, even if we're, we're all very different, just, uh, you know, just by bouncing off one another. Um, yeah. And uh, so obviously I guess kind of coming towards the, the end of that adolescence and, you know, you're, you've taken form a little bit, you know, that this is kind of the path. Who are you hanging out with who's kind of like doing this with you? Are you, are you doing this all solo? Or are you, is there kind of, you you have a collective of artists you're working with? Or is there like, you know, a, a teacher, uh, kind of a mentor of some sort that's kind of like helping you navigate this path? Well, I mean, I didn't really know a lot of uh, other people that were into making comics. I had a lot of great teachers and like even, you know, I had great art teachers. I also had like, uh, even like my math teacher, uh, would like like I did a daily comic strip in the margins of my math homework, and like if, if I if I didn't have my math homework done, like he wasn't upset I didn't get my work done, like he wanted that day's comic. <laughs> um, he was he was very supportive and like wanting to like he like like I have so many uh, teachers that still send me pictures of like homework that they kept because they liked the drawings in the in the corner. So people That's were dope. always extremely supportive, and it what people didn't have to be into the same things. They just thought it was cool that a child was so driven and obsessed with one goal mm. that they just, I, I, they were just so supportive of me following it. And, uh, and I, I still talk to a lot of the, of them today. So I, I guess obviously from there you end up going to art school, but the, mm. how do, how do you, uh, college for me, like figuring out what I want to do with college was a, a nightmare, right? Like there's a, a billion choices and majors and all that, but it sounds like, cool, I know exactly what I want to go for. But you had mentioned, it's not like you had a, a ton of guidance, like, hey, like this is the program for the style of animation you want to get into, or like this will open up this particular door that you really want to pursue. So how did you go about kind of making that, you know, decision? And like, how do you, where do you end up for college? Yeah, well, from when I was a baby, I was obsessed with going to CalArts because I'd heard okay. about like so many great people that I respected uh, had gone there. A lot of people that directed the movies I liked and the shows that I liked went there. And I was always obsessed with going there. And then uh, my senior year, my art teacher had, uh, she worked closely with uh, the College for Creative Studies in Detroit. And um, she like kept pushing me to go there. And I said, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to go to CalArts. And then she uh, she applied for me on my behalf for a bunch of scholarships and got me a bunch of scholarships. <laughs> and then like I looked at the scholarship she got me, and then I looked at how much Cal Arts costs, and I'm like, okay, actually I will go there. <laughs> uh, so uh, that that's basically how I ended up there. Money money can definitely be a motivating factor. It's the reason I didn't end up going to Tulane like I wanted to, and probably the reason mm -hmm. I graduated college as a result of not moving to New Orleans. Uh, <laughs> so I, I feel like all is well that ends well. Uh, and so when, I, I guess, what do you, what are you watching at that time? You mentioned like the whole reason you want to go to Caltech is like, you know, all these shows, all these movies, like what's kind of influencing you? Like, what are the, what are you taking uh, in? Yeah. I mean, at the time I was obsessed with Chuck Jones, the uh, Looney Tunes director. 
He's the guy who made like Roadrunner and uh, Wiley Coyote and all that. Um, I, I was really obsessed with Looney Tunes. Like as a, in like all through uh, like junior high school and high school, like I would carry around my copy of like uh, Chuckamuck, which is his autobiography. And I'd carry around uh, uh, the complete guide to the Warner cartoons. And I, I, I memorized the whole book so that if anyone ever asked me, like they, they could name a moment in a cartoon and I could tell them, the title of the cartoon, the year it came out, the director, the cast, the production designer, the music, and everything. Of just like no any Looney Tune ever. Any uh, any Looney Tune ever from from the very first one. There were like thousands of them. I'd memorized the entire book, but no one cared or ever asked me any <laughs> question. Has it ever come up since? Has there ever been like you went on Not like a Tinder all. first date and girl sat down and nope. she was just like, "Do you remember that episode with Tasmanian Devil?" And you're like, "Fucking finally, this is the one." Never came up, and I'm, I've forgotten it all now. So it's, it was just completely wasted time. But I enjoyed it. I was into it. I'm, I'm sure it'll be on Jeopardy one night when you're flicking through and be like, finally, this is my time to shine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I'm curious, like, is that kind of how your memory works in general, like as far as inspirations go, where you're able to kind of soak in that depth? Or is that something like you were just obsessed at that time? You're reading, you know, front to back, you know, as soon as you get on the Internet, you're going and finding everything you can about uh, about Looney Tunes and like uh, about this style. Or is that something is that kind of how you operate now where you just kind of get immersed in things like that? No, that's not really how I am now. I mean, earlier on, I think, you know, as an artist, before you start creating things of your own, uh, it, it, you just kind of have to latch onto thing, the things that you love and kind of define yourself with those. And that's how I defined myself at that time. I, I had a whole thing through the entirety of uh, middle school and high school. I wore a, a cartoon T-shirt every single day. Um, like I would like my mother would try and buy me like a T-shirt with a wolf on it and I would cry because <laughs> I'm like, no, everyone will notice I'm not wearing a, a Garfield shirt today. Um and so, like, that, that was how I defined myself and it, it, with, like, you know, Looney Tunes and Garfield. Like, I would, like, try and get a, a party going for Garfield's birthday every year at school, and nobody ever wanted to celebrate Garfield's birthday. Um, but now, uh, you know, now I still love things passionately. I love things that other people create. But I enjoy watching them, but I don't use them to identify who I am. I don't... Uh, get obsessed with memorizing, you know, I, I, I memorize a lot of things just from, you know, being super into it and watching it a lot, but I don't like get out the book and study because I feel that I need to know that to be who I am. And I, I guess there's a lot, a lot of things I want to ask off of that, but I guess first and foremost, like you've obviously found a fair amount of success. Now you've worked on a, a, quite a number of projects with a fair amount of reach. I, I, I've discovered you as somebody who does not read comic journal, comic novels or graphic novels, rather comics, anything magna, anything kind of in that vein very frequently. Uh, and I've stumbled across your work at least a half dozen times or so before this conversation. So obviously like you found a fair amount of success in this. Do you ever think about kind of your impact on other people getting into this in that way? Where like they're they're defining themselves by like I I am a you know a fan of Ryan's work like this is the type of illustrator this is the type of animator I, I like hope to emulate in the future. Um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm I really enjoy like trying to help people. Like I one of my favorite things besides making comics is peer pressuring other people to make art. Hmm. And uh, You're good I think that. a lot of people have have made work because of me, not necessarily because of my work. Like I. I 
I've done a lot of things, but I, you know, I haven't made that one thing that like has made a huge cultural impact yet. But I think just like, uh, the, the, the thing that got you and I talking, I did that tweet about like, um, I, I did a tweet recently about everyone should do a, a, a you know, announce your goals today. And it kind of went viral. And that, that's kind of what I do is like push other people to follow. Like, you know, if I can be a dumb six-year-old thinking I can work for a newspaper, like just who cares, say what you want to do. And, um, you know, here I'm living in Korea and just kind of peer pressuring all my friends into, uh, like, you know, getting my friends book deals and like people that didn't even want ever want to be comic writers. And I'm now like peer pressuring into comic careers. And I've, I've heard from a lot of other people that have been inspired by things that I've written in that way. So I think that's mostly the way that I, I kind of, uh, have an impact on people is just from obsessively peer pressuring them into creative endeavors. I guess, how, how do you, how'd you arrive at that? Because by the sound of it, like that, that was arguably the one thing missing for you, right? Like you had all the love and the support and the resources and everything, but there wasn't necessarily anyone in your life who was like pushing you, like, here's a thing that I'm into. Like, here's, you know, seven opportunities. Why don't you like try this and let me like apply some pressure? Uh, and I, I, I'm a fan. I, I think that works very well. At the very least, it brings together a bunch of cool people on the internet and gets me some pretty sweet podcast guests. So uh, I'm, I'm into it, but I, wh- how'd you, how'd you arrive? at that kind of being how you wanted to impact the world cutting out again oh sorry uh, let me turn this here i um, heard i heard uh, how did you arrive yeah so I, I guess how did you arrive at the decision of like that being how you wanted to impact the world because it sounds like that that was kind of the thing you didn't have when you were growing up and kind of getting into this was somebody sort of applying that peer pressure like you had, you had all the support you had all the, like the outside support you could have but as far as like peers kind of like within that discipline or within that industry there wasn't a lot of that and so obviously you're providing that to a lot of people and then you know obviously people like myself outside of that industry as well so like how did you arrive at you know peer pressure and kind of like opening doors for people being such a a, an essential part of your identity now i mean i i I never really like made a decision that i'm going to be a dude who peer pressures people (laughs) i just get really excited about creative projects and you know it's not like you know i make comics everyone else should make comics i just kind of uh, naturally, like when I see someone making something cool or someone tells an interesting story, I'm like, uh, you know, this is amazing. You should make something out of that, whatever it is that people love to do. Like, I, um, here in Busan, there's a lot of like open mics where people can go on, you know, storytelling shows, poetry shows, comedy, open mics, things like that. And I just, uh, ask a lot, you know, I, I, I go up there a lot just because I like trying new, uh, new forms of art. And I, I like tell all my friends, why don't you give it a shot? And, you know, I'm, I'm not the one that's going to like, if they genuinely don't want to do it, push them to do it. But, um, if people are just, there's something they want to try, but they're nervous. I really want to see their art because they're, they're my friends. I like what they do. I like their stories. And, um, and sometimes the, you know, I, I get excited about them. I want to work with them. Well, I was like, Hey, you want to co-write a graphic novel with me? And they're like, I've, I've never planned on doing that. I'm like, well, you're going to do it now. I just got you a book deal. Congratulations. And so I, how does that work though? Like I, when you like that, that sounds very lovely and very uh, uh, friendly of you, but like, are these friends of yours who are like, have a writing background or these friends of yours who are like a stockbroker, they come to visit you in Korea for like two weeks and then you like talk them into quitting them their job and get them a book deal. Like, how does that work? Like, how does that happen? 
Well, uh, well, the one thing to know about comics is uh, getting a book deal does not mean you get to quit your job. <laughs> I have, I guess that's I have, weird. I'm, I'm working on like uh, eight different books right now, and I still got to keep my day job. But I'd like um, to point that out as also true for anyone listening to this podcast about podcast hosts. If you hear an ad on this podcast, it means I made roughly seven dollars. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's not a. That's, that's basically how it works. Yeah, <laughs> when you get a book deal, it means. It means, oh, I get a little bit of money to make a book. And then in like three years when the book comes out, if eventually the publisher makes back everything they spent on it, I'll make a little bit more money. <laughs> and it could, you could make a lot of money, but you could also like never earn that back and like never get anything. So you never know. But uh, for me, it's just like um, like the two of the books I'm working on right now are Band Book Club and Occulted, which are true stories. Uh, one is my wife's uh, life story and another is a friend of mine's life story. And, um, basically like it just came from me hearing true stories about my friend's lives and like, uh, telling a publisher about it and the publisher saying like, I really want to publish this book, um, just because the, the stories are fascinating. Um, and you know, the, the Amy Rose, who's the artist I'm working on with, uh, occulted, um, Amy's a writer, uh, Amy's a comedian, a poet, uh, She's never written comics before, but, um, you know, we're, that's why we're kind of working together on it. Uh, she's providing the story. I'm kind of structuring it as a comic. And then we had, you know, Band Book Club that I wrote with my wife, where my wife has no interest in, in writing, never wanted to write a book. And now suddenly, like, I comes home from work one day and I'm like, hey, by the way, I got you a book deal. And then, like, <laughs> she's, getting, she's getting flown to America to... A, like a VIP guest at the American Library Association and in getting newspaper articles written about her. And everybody's like, when, what's your next book? She's like, I don't want to write another book. <laughs> it's like, I didn't want to write this one. I got peer pressured yeah. into this. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm curious when it comes to kind of writing in this format, obviously you're, you know, you're, you're an expert in this for a long time now. Is it easier to kind of trend uh, translate i guess smaller or longer stories because i guess my vision is like it's very it's easier to take this like moment when you can illustrate it all out and like you can tell the story of you know a 15 minute story in this very beautiful elegant way where you kind of get all the details out but you you don't have to it's not overly verbose and i think that's those are those are the times i'm very drawn to comics in general uh but also like from what you're telling me like some of the stuff you're working on now it's like it is literally a full life story uh so that's obviously like a, a giant endeavor and I like I couldn't imagine taking that under as like an art project, but like you said, I suppose it's no different than you know writing you know a, a one man show of an autobiography for a stage, right, or a comedy show about it. Uh, and so I guess what do you what's your process like for that? For from like I have this story, and how do I break this down into a digestible comic? Well, the, the thing about comics is it can literally be anything. Like that, um, there's no one thing that makes a good comic like there there's people that do you know single panel comics there's people that do the four panel comics there's people that do thousand page tomes of like mm. these massive stories and there's so many it, it can be any genre it can be serious it can be funny um and for me it's just about uh kind of breaking it down to like pages and moments um the big difference between writing for example like a movie script and a comic script is uh, you have to think about um, kind of the like limitations you have, but also the things you can't do in a movie. Like, you you know, you can't put in 
sound, you can't put in movement, but you just think of what the, the moments are that are important and you try to make each page kind of have a, uh, each page doesn't have to be self-contained, but you want each page to be like a complete thought. And what are the images we can put in to illustrate that? You know, some pages might just be a conversation. You just break it up into what fits in a panel, but then you want, you need to show, uh, you don't have tones of voice. So you need to figure out how to show that with staging and expressions and poses. And it, it's basically just about, uh, when I, when I write a script, I'll, I'll just, I don't think about that at first. I'll just type it out. Like I'm typing a movie script just as, you know, just dialogue. Mm. And then I'll take that and figure out how do I portray this visually? Is it, you know, and, and I'll look at my script and be like, Oh, this part's really talky. Everyone that's this long monologue. Do I really need that? Or can I like have the character have a certain look on their face or frame them a certain way? and get all of that, you know, that whole picture is worth a thousand words thing. Can I just cut out, you know, you know, uh, two paragraphs just by the visuals and, um, you know, it's different for every project because it, it, comic could be anything. And I, I guess I'm curious when you're, when you're starting that process, it, it obviously with some of the, with uh, Occulted and the band book club, these are based on true stories. Are, is a lot of your work kind of based on, like you already have a story in mind or is it more so like you're, you're starting with a character or two and you're kind of fleshing out like, well, you know, here's who this character would be and kind of who I, who I want to craft this narrative around. What might they look like? What are, what are some of those expressions? What setting is this taking place in? Like which, which comes first, I guess, kind of the, the, the look and feel of it and like the, the characters and the setting, or is it like you start with a, a story and a narrative in mind that you're trying to tell and then kind of craft the world to fit that? It really depends on the project because, um, you know, I do some fiction, some nonfiction. Uh, the projects I've been doing recently, I've been doing a lot of um, uh, nonfiction. So obviously that there's a story, there's yeah. characters already set into place. It's just my job is how do I translate that to tell that story the best way I can. Um, but when I write fiction, I actually write differently from a lot of other people. Um, what I do, I, I, when I'm writing fiction, I never sit down in front of a computer and write, write the script. I think about it for like years before I ever write it. And for me, it's like when, I, when I'm on a bus and I'm just looking out the window, like I, I'll just like watch a story in my head. It's kind of like pulling a, a DVD off the rack and putting it in. And I just sit and watch a story play out in my like kind of daydreaming. And then every time I watch this the, you know oh let's watch this one again it's slightly different because i you know i don't remember what i thought about last time and i just kind of remember the big beats and like i forget the boring bits and i kind of add new things and i'll watch it over and over again as it evolves and then at the, at some point i've watched it so many times i'm like man i really like that story i want to i wish other people could watch it if it wasn't like a fictional thing in my head so then when i sit down in front of a computer it's kind of like adapting a book that no one else has read because hmm. i'm trying to like how can i represent this thing that I've already seen a million times. And so at, at pretty much each time you're seeing it, like you, you're hitting them, those major beats, but you're like, well, I've kind of forgotten this part. So I, I'd imagine maybe it goes kind of like this. And so it's getting reinvented each time until it's like, no, that's the best version of this. And it kind of gets stuck from there. Yeah, exactly. And it's in, you know, a, a final project that I decided to do will eventually come from just like, you know, these daydreams start just from some moment I found interesting or some character that I latched onto and it just kind of builds out from there just from me daydreaming on a bus. 
and yeah that's basically it is that it evolves until it becomes something uh i i think i know the answer to this from that answer then but what do you prefer writing fiction or nonfiction? um fun wise i i really love writing fiction like just being able to (laughs) being able to sit there and just go wild and think of anything um is is my favorite thing i i mean i do also love the end product that i get when i write nonfiction. uh i think sometimes some of the things i work on that are nonfiction are, are more important than you know and some of the fiction that i write is kind of sillier and and less important but it's so much more fun to write i mean that that certainly makes a lot of sense to me i if if i had the ability to translate literal daydreams of mine into literal works of art then i i i couldn't imagine even taking the check to go write nonfiction. i wouldn't want to write let alone like working with my wife to tell her stories uh so like i i i, com- I commend you for getting out of your head long enough to like go do other things uh because i i don't know like that's the process I think a lot of people who fancy themselves artists but aren't kind of working is like I have these daydreams I have these ideas for a story and like I wish I could do something with them uh, I think that's a lot of people you know that that's what separates artists from non-artists uh, but like you said a lot of artists I talk to don't really have that process because they've been I you know either taught or coached or professionalized over the years of kind of getting out of that and in, into some kind of rhythm that you know helps them churn out you know, a, enough product, if you will, uh, to kind of continue paying their bills and making their livelihood and all of that. Uh, and that, that's kind of a shame. So I'm glad to, I'm glad to hear you're finding like a nice delicate balance with that. Uh, I want to come back and talk a little bit more about kind of just, you know, the aspects of your life as a storyteller. Cause as you mentioned, like it's not necessarily always just Ben comics, even though that is primarily, uh, kind of the outlet for that. Uh, so I want to take a quick break here and then come back and do our second half of the podcast called I'm one of those people. And we'll kind of dive into that. Sound good. Sounds great. second half of our episode here is my uh, second favorite segment, I guess you could say, because I love uh, the way we end up with random people. Uh, but I'm one of those people is a segment of the show where we kind of explore labels and identities. Uh, and I think without a doubt, kind of the, the, the core label of your identity is one of a storyteller. Uh, so I kind of wanted mm-hmm. to explore some of the different avenues that's taken you. Uh, I, I guess I first want to circle back to a couple of points I, I missed on the front half of this. Uh, you'd mentioned, obviously, you peer pressure a, a lot of friends into artistic endeavors just out of curiosity what's your your favorite mode of storytelling or favorite kind of artistic craft of your own that isn't comics um i really like live storytelling uh it it was something that i'd never done for a long time until i moved to korea this most recent time and i only did it because um i i have this thing called the the not my jam challenge where if i ever catch myself turning down an opportunity 
only because it's not my jam, it's not the kind of thing I'm into, then I have to do it. Um, I love that. So it's, it, it's brought me so many amazing places. And it just kind of, I, I had just moved to, to Busan, South Korea, uh, and someone invited me to, be, to do spoken word. I'm like, oh, it's not my job. Oh, crap, now I got to do it. <laughs> and so I went up on stage. I, um, like I, 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 did a, I think the first one I did was a poetry slam. I won my first poetry slam. Uh, then I did storytelling shows. Then I did uh, um, uh, uh, I did Shakespeare. Then I ended up hosting the Shakespeare uh, Festival one year. I started doing live radio. I started editing, uh, writing, and directing podcasts. And uh, eventually, I went back to America and started doing the Moth and uh, Risk podcast. And so it just kind of grew from there, from just this like oh, this is a thing I'd never do, but I got to do it because I never did to like now it's a huge part of my identity. It, it seems that you, you have something of a trend in your life of, I've never done this. I'm going to try this. I was like really successful at this first time almost by mistake. Is that, does a lot of your life fall together that way? Or are there things on the Not My Jam Challenge that you tried and you were just like horrible at? Yeah, I, I mean, I... Yeah, I, I just love trying new things. And one of the things that I love about being a storyteller and the reason I love ide identifying myself that way is that I always succeed at everything because I don't care what the outcome is. Um, <laughs> like if if something goes great, that's great. I had a great experience. If something goes horribly wrong, that's amazing. I got another story. Uh, so I have bombed many, many times but I've always learned something from it. And like, I'll do, um, nowadays when I, when I write comics about my life, I do like an autobiographical comic and I'll spend a couple of years telling it on stage first. And I'll tell it in different, like different formats, a storytelling show, a comedy show, and see if I can adapt the story to, you know, like obviously I can't change the story, but tell it with, you know, accentuating different beats and telling it different ways and see what makes the story tick and what makes it funny. And um, it kind of makes me a, a better storyteller. And so it, uh, when, when I horribly bomb, I realize something about the story and it makes the story better. Um, and like there are stories I've told where like it wasn't until I was telling it on stage that I realized, oh, wait, I'm the bad guy of the story. <laughs> and then like, instead of like hiding that, I'm like, well, let's just lean into that about what a jerk I was. And then it makes the story better. Um, and that's just how I've lived my life with, with everything. Like when I travel to places that people think are, you know, people are like, are you sure you want to go there? Is it safe? And like horrible things can happen. And I'm like, yeah, but then I, I get a new chapter for my comic. I get another story to tell on stage. Uh, so that's, uh, I forget what question led me into this long tangent, but that's why I love being a storyteller. <laughs> no, I mean, that's, that's perfect. I think that's great. I, I, I used to say as a, as a younger child, like one of my favorite go-to lines was like, I don't really necessarily care if it's right or wrong or good or bad. I just, I'm here for the story. So long as it's a good story, it's worth doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and naturally like a, through the lens of, you know, a teenager or 22 year old or whatever, like that's a, a very dangerous way to live life. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I will admit now in, in my later years, I, I have a lot more stories than a lot of people. So it's, it's panned out, I guess. I'm curious. Yeah, well, no, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I mean, as I said, I have been on fire. Uh, I have been lost in the Maasai Mara and almost eaten by lions. I've been thrown from moving train. 
I have um, I have been uh, stuck in a coca war. I have been skinny dipping with uh, piranhas. I have been through a fair number of stories, and uh, a lot of them. If anyone else, if if any one of those things happened to anyone else, uh, like you know, the time I threw a million dollars in a garbage can accidentally. Uh, like it, it, it was a it was a game piece, a Taco Bell game piece that I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know oh, it was worth man. a million dollars at the time. Wow. Okay. But yeah. So if any of these had happened to anyone else, they would have been like, "This is a horrible thing that happened to me." But now I'm like, there's so many of them, and they so define who I am that I'm like, another one to add to the pile. Great. I okay. So I'm, this is a question I ask everybody. I'm very curious for your answer. Then is like. How did essentially how did you decide to call yourself a blank? But in this case, a storyteller, because it sounds like forever you've had fucking stories, man. Like <laughs> you just rattled off like 10 of what would be everybody's best story. You know what I mean? Like if you have that story in your repertoire, like you don't break that out at a cocktail party until like around midnight or so. So you make sure you win the conversation. You know what I mean? And so like, w- at what point in life are you like, OK, like clearly this is just meant to be like my life is more interesting than a lot of others. I should learn how to like tell people about this. Uh, the first, the big one that really made a huge impact on me was shortly after I, I first moved to uh, Korea. And as I said, this was when I, um, I went to art school. I, uh, I was graduating the whole industry got laid off and I'm like, Oh, I guess I'm not going to get a job. Moved to Korea. And this was like my first time out on my own, uh, like even through college, like I lived in a, an apartment below my grandma's house. Like I'm on my own. I have to learn to live and now I'm in this, in this new place. And I was nervous and, you know, frightened about things going wrong. And then uh, one of the things you had to do back then was when you started a job, you had to go do a visa run mm. where you start working first and they'd send you to Japan for a day where you get the visa and you come back. That sounds so. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it's, a lot of times it's nice. You get a nice little day trip, go to Japan out of it. But what happened was my school want, didn't want me to miss class. Mm. So they sent me on a Korean national holiday. And of course, the Korean consulate is closed on Korean national holidays. Naturally. <laughs> so I get there. They're not open. So I, have to, I, I can't make my flight. And then uh, I ran out of money because I was a poor college student who had just moved to Korea. I hadn't gotten my first paycheck yet. I only worked a few days. And now I'm stranded there. Uh, that night, there's a typhoon. Oh, my God. And uh, so I'm like, well, I guess I'll just go sleep at the airport. And uh, like, I also had gotten really, like, I'd been out in the typhoon. I'd gotten really, really sick. I think I got some kind of food poisoning. I've run out of money. And I'm puking everywhere. I'm horribly sick. I'm trying to sleep in the airport. And at, like, 10 o'clock p.m., they start turning off the lights. And the security guard's like, you got to leave, man. We're closing the airport. I'm like, the airport closes. And I'm like, there, there's, there, there's a typhoon. And he's like, I don't care. Get out. And I just get kicked out of this airport in the middle of nowhere. In a typhoon. Everything's cl- yeah. In a typhoon. There's no taxis, no buses. Even if there was, I have no money. And I'm, so I'm just walking along a highway in a typhoon, like trees are falling over. Like this is like a lot of people died in this typhoon. It was a huge thing. And like, I'm just, walking and walking getting drenched and puking all over myself and eventually i found uh this park where all these homeless people were sleeping and i'm like if there were a better place to sleep they would be there so i'm laying (laughs) on this bench 
just completely sick and soaked and like having electronics in my bag that I now know are now destroyed. And I'm freaking out about what a horrible time I'm having. And there's this moment where this, this cat comes and sits on my, on my lap. And, and it is just, that moment was so surreal that I started laughing. And in the moment I realized this is the worst moment of my life and I'm totally fine. Like I'm puking, but like, I'm going to, I'm going to survive. I'm going to, I'm going to tomorrow. It didn't end up being tomorrow. I ended up stranded there a week, but like, eventually I'm going to get back. I'm going to tell people about the story. They're going to laugh at me. And I'm like, I'm fine. I can handle anything. And from that moment, the literally that moment of laughing hysterically while homeless Japanese people look over, like, why is this crazy person laughing like the Joker in the middle of a typhoon? Um, from that moment, I've like, I've had no fear of anything going wrong. And I've, and it's been, I'm an adventurer. I'm a storyteller. I'm fine. So many things about that I want to follow up on, and I'm short on time, so I'm going to ask, as I always do, the dumbest and least important follow-up question out of the many that I have in my head. What'd you do with the cat? Uh, <laughs> I, we just we just slept together. He cuddled up next to me. We, we slept. I named him Game Boy. D- did you, like, bring him home with you or anything, though? Did you just, like, hang out no, with him for the next no. week, at least? Or was it just, like, yeah, a one-night, he I mean, hung out, and that was it? I, yeah, when I woke up in the morning, Game Boy was gone. <laughs> So Game Boy just but, appears out of nowhere and just has yeah, like this very sage moment with darkness, you. Appears in the darkness to change my life and then disappears into the ether. <laughs> well, like I said, man, I, I literally ask every guest I have on the show, like, what was that moment you decided to call yourself a storyteller? And that is by far the best answer to that question I've ever gotten. A, it, it was stranded in a, in a secondary foreign country, not, not even in the foreign country I'm trying to be in. Stranded mm-hmm. in a secondary foreign country, I get a, a weird black cat omen after getting food poisoning stuck out of an airport in the middle of a typhoon and survived that moment. Uh... How did you live up to, I, maybe this is a, the, the important version of the follow-up, but like, how do you live up to being a storyteller after that? Like, if, if you come back and you're like, okay, this is the moment, then you tell everybody that story a thousand times, and that's obviously like an, a, an amazing story. Like, the next time you want to go tell a story in any sort of professional capacity, are you like, do you have cold feet? Are you like a little shook? Like, will this live up to that? Or is just everything kind of happening in succession at that point? You're like, Oh, I can just tell this, this well. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky in that I've done many, many dumb things and I never (laughs) ever run out of stories. Um, and I I even like, uh, as an example of how it evolved from like being nervous and the situation, I actually ended up, uh, stranded on a park bench in a typhoon in Japan another time like two years later for a completely different reason i you'd think but everything just went wrong in in the same way and at that that time one of the another defining moment was there was a moment where i had like exactly like 250 to my name Mm. i had exactly like two to and the thing is especially at that time in japan like you couldn't use international cards so even if someone like was able to send me money like i couldn't get it um it's just very cash only society so i have exactly two dollars and fifty cents and i have no hope of getting out of there by the end of the week and there was a moment where i at the time i was drawing a comic about the situation as it was happening like i had a little notebook and a pen and i was drawing like oh today i slept here today i slept today i, I broke into the fukuoka sports dome and slept there until security kicked me out 
this day I, I pretended I put my dirty clothes in a laundry machine I couldn't afford to, to run and uh, pretend so that if anyone came in, I could pretend like my, my laundry just finished. Um, so I'm, I'm drawing this comic and then my pen runs out. <laughs> and I realize I can spend $2.50 on a sandwich or I can spend $2.50 on a pen to draw a comic about how hungry I am. <laughs> and I'll bet you can guess which one I did. Uh, you 110% bought the pen. I, I bought the pen. I, I've known you for 55 and a half minutes and counting so far, and I know without a shade of doubt you bought the pen. <laughs> I bought the pen, and I drew a comic about how hungry I was because I couldn't get that sandwich. <laughs> oh, wow, man. And so... And, I guess life is a, a, a series of uh, both unfortunate and, and in your case, because you're a gifted storyteller and an artist, a, a fortunate series of inspirations. Uh, but when did, I guess, when did you get to a point where you were kind of like comfortable as an artist? So a lot of the artists I've talked to on this show, it's like, that's one of the major struggles of it, right? It's like, how do, how do I make a living with my art? Uh, and it seems that like, it, from one form or another, you've always been able to kind of figure that out pretty seamlessly. So what's, what's that been like figuring out like, you know, Hey, I am, I am a storyteller. Like that's what I do for a living and figuring out like exactly like how do I monetize this in a way that doesn't feel, you know, I don't know, capitalist and shitty. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, as far as like having confidence to do it, that's something I've never had trouble with. And, and not because I, I think I'm amazing, but in just the, like, I know what I can do. I enjoy doing it. And I, you know, I, it doesn't have to be a thing that everyone loves for me to be happy with it. I just love making things. And, uh, and from a young age, that's all I, I cared about. But then like, there was a whole period where, uh, there were a lot of projects I was trying to get off the ground with publishers and submitting to agents and n nothing was really happening. And then, uh, I, at one point I, I literally announced that I was quitting comics to work on audio drama because I'd just done a, a podcast. And then uh, just because I, I, you know, I loved making comics, but I just felt like nobody was really into it and that, like nobody was responding to things. And right after I quit, I just started getting all these emails out of the blue and like uh, people subtweeting me job offers and like getting a message from like uh, about the someone wants me to work with George Takei on an anthology and someone <laughs> wants to publish a book about this and uh some some stuff I'm still not allowed to talk about some huge emails that like changed my life that I'm like oh I guess that I'm going back to comics and getting all excited about it again so it's just about you know number one about um uh loving what I do and uh but also like you said trying not to be super you know capitalist and mercenary about it like I for years, I was a full-time artist. I mentioned I still have a day job now, but for years, I was—I just did custom comics for a living. I did a lot of like draw my boyfriend as a superhero, draw a comic about our startup and how our app works, draw our company, our pharmaceutical company CEOs as as rock stars, <laughs> and I—I I made good money doing that. But every single one destroyed my soul. So say, at one point, yeah. it was. It was a very hard decision because I, I was giving up being a full-time artist and I was making decent money at it. But I'm like, I can't do this anymore. I I quit it entirely and just said, I'm only going to make comics that I'm passionate about now. And it's taken a, many, many years to try and like, you know, as I said, I still need a day job. I, I, I have a, so many projects now, but I'm not enough to like pay rent and uh, have that be my my full-time job 
but it's it's so much better than you know having to argue with someone it's like it doesn't look like him and i'm like yeah you because you told me to draw him as batman and <laughs> he's wearing a freaking mask what is your boyfriend's chin is not that distinguishable sorry uh, your boyfriend does not look so like that conversation. <laughs> yeah it's just and i'm like do you want me to draw him without the mask no he needs the mask then how can i make it look like him in batman mask <laughs> anyway i did a lot of that um and i i'm so happy to be done with that as a uh, as somebody who is a, a veteran of several tech startups, the amount of times we commissioned out somebody to make like a whiteboard animation video of some fucking product demo, and I'm just like, this is just it's a weird thing for me because a lot of my friends are artists, and I, I come from a, a background of mostly like craftspeople and arts people, you know now a lot more in like writing and film uh but a lot of my day job life has been in technology and so there's so many parts of the startup community that are just like well just go on fiverr and just like find some animator who can do this for you know five dollars in you know 12 hours and i'm just like do you not understand like the soul crushing ask you are making of like an artistic professional here and just the answer is a resounding no every single time like this is like nobody gets it and it's uh, i don't know uh i'm i'm glad you found your out from there but i guess i i'm curious what was that transition back into okay so i'm no longer like am i still a professional artist even if i'm not doing this quote-unquote full-time uh and obviously in your case like there's there's plenty of projects to validate that but like i i guess how do you rationalize that in your head where you're like okay like i love everything that i'm working on but like I don't even make enough money from this with all this success, with all the stuff I've worked on to be able to like, I, I still need a day job on top of that. Like, I, you know, I'm fairly successful, I would imagine. <laughs> you know what I mean? In, in, in the grander scheme of things, especially only working on things you like. Uh, and so where where is that tipping point for you? Like, where do you see yourself where you could not have a day job again, but still only work on projects you like? Or is that not really in the realm of possibility? Um, I, as I said, I, like, I have, I have so many things right now that, uh, that are likely to pay off in a year and a half. Okay. And like, so a lot we'll, of those we'll things see. are just like, where they, we'll they, they're, they're not doing the job right now, but it's like, once all these things come to fruition, like this is not a, this is not a forever problem. Yeah. I mean, what, I mean, it's, it's all possibility that in a year and a half I hmm. could, I could find out that I'm fabulously wealthy now, or I could find out that, Oh, all of those things bombed and I'm very, very poor now. I don't know, but I also don't really care that much. I love the things that I'm making and I love that I have opportunities to make them with publishers and get them out in front of people. Uh, I, everything I'm working on right now, I'm very happy to say that like, I think they're all important and like they make the world a better place. Like they tell stories uh, from real life that I think need to be told even the fiction stuff I'm working on, I feel is uh, expressing messages that I think need to be told. And I have uh, publishers, uh, paying collaborators, uh, paying storytellers, paying artists to uh, get those stories told. And I'm extremely happy with where I am right now. I do not actually care uh, if any of it makes money. I just hope it does. Cause I don't want to teach English anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that was fair. I, uh, I, I, I don't know. That's kind of actually how I, I arrived at the podcast thing was like, I did a bunch of things that made perfectly good money and had, you know, a fair amount of success doing them. And then just everything came back to like, I don't ever get to talk about the things I want to talk about. I never get to talk with the people I like to talk to. I never get to platform the people like I think deserve to be platformed. And so, uh, 
money be damned, I guess I'll go figure out how to talk for a living. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's pretty much what led me to doing this. Uh, so I, I can certainly relate there. I, I don't think I have uh, any George Takai level projects lined up on my, on, my, on my radar. So you're in a little better spot, I think. Uh, so more power to you. And I hope all of the bets pay off. I guess. Um, well, I think, I think the one thing that I've learned is that you never know what is going to take off. Like some of the most popular things I've done, like that Learn to Read Queen in 15 Minutes comic, I didn't even put my name on it because I, I just made it because some friends kept bugging me <laughs> to teach them how to read Korean. And it went so viral that there's literally a bootleg themed restaurant uh, for that comic in China. <laughs> uh I've, I've had people come up to me at conventions and yell at me and say, you can't just print shit off Reddit and sell it. And I'm like, I, I made it. Um, <laughs> that like, and like one, one of the things right now uh, that I'm like, one of the huge things that might pay off in a year and a half that I can't talk about yet, like is from a comic that I did like uh, 17 years ago that was pitched to every publisher and every uh, agent in the publishing industry and was rejected by everyone put online no one read it and suddenly someone was interested in it and it could in a very life-changing way so the thing i tell everyone is make the things you want to make and put them on the internet and you never know what is going to change your life i I, I guess I'm so inspired by that because I feel like there are so many people who kind of have that mission and that vision and that idea for life, but then they're like, you know, well, I, yeah, you should put everything up, but like, I didn't want to put this out because I, I didn't really like how this came out and I, I don't know how this will reflect on my image. And all of a sudden you have like 80 great projects that are just saved on a hard drive somewhere that nobody's ever going to see and nothing's ever going to come of. And it's just like, just throw it all out there, man. Like see what people are going to like and you never really know, like, who or what might take off. And so, uh, I, I don't know. I, I guess personally, I'm very inspired by kind of that approach to things. I just, I always pray that it works out for people because I, you know, the, the big fear obviously there is like you take, you know, 40 big swings and end up with 41 big misses and you know, you're 50 years old looking at yourself. Well, what the fuck did I just do here? Uh, I guess. Yeah, that- and, the, and the thing is that what, what people are always worried about is they're worried about what if I put it out there and people don't like it if you put it out there and people don't like it, they're not going to remember it. And they're not going to remember your name. Put out another thing a week later. That's good. They will not make the connection that you made the dumb thing. They didn't like, like, do not worry, put stuff out there. And in a weird way. And I, I hate to make this comparable, but like, I, I truly believe that is something we can all learn from Trump's America, which is that no matter how horrible the shit you put out there is, people will forget in five minutes when you say something else. Uh, <laughs> and so, like, if that holds up for white nationalism and xenophobia, then I should hope that holds up for, like, me stuttering through a podcast. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I, I, think, mm-hmm. I think we'll be all right. Uh, I meant to ask, by the way, at the top, just for some reference point, uh, because you've been doing this so long, like there are things you say where you're like, yeah, this is a project I you know, put out 16 years ago and is now like, you know, p- getting picked up and people are interested in. How old are you? Just to like kind of put the timeline in reference for some people. I was born in 1980. 80. Okay. No, because there are... Uh, I guess there are a couple mentions there kind of like in your trajectory where you're transitioning between, uh, I guess, the analog and the digital era. Uh, and it was hard to kind of like keep that in line. So I just wanted to make sure listeners at home had kind of a, a timeline to base that on. I, yeah, when I, when I tell people all of my stories, they're like, are you like 86 years old? How have you done so many things? Well, and that's the thing. Then you look at you and you're like listen, man, like, I understand black doesn't crack, but he's only like a quarter Mexican. Like, what the fuck? Like, he can't look that good for 60. You know what I mean? Uh, 
I guess I, I wanted to wrap up here with a couple of questions that I like to ask everybody kind of on the label side of things. Uh, first and foremost, I guess this would be a pretty hard one for you, but what is just your favorite part of this? Like, what is your favorite part of writing comics, of being a storyteller, of just like, I, I guess, choosing to live your life this way and through this identity where a major part of who you are and what you do is kind of bringing things to life? Like, what is your favorite part of getting a chance to do that? For me, it's the moment where you're you're working on a new story and there's there's a moment and it's never when I'm in front of a keyboard. It's always like when I'm hiking up a mountain or when I'm sitting on a bus board and suddenly there's a connection made where like there was there's a story that's like disparate elements. And then suddenly I realize like the thing that ties them together and the things that make the story interesting to me. And that's like a drug to me like that's I get so excited and I like have to call my wife who does not could care less about what I'm talking about has no frame of reference because I'm talking about a thing that doesn't exist, but I'm so excited and I have to tell everyone like that's, that's it. That's the moment where I like make a, a story come out of nothing and make sense and turn into something special. I, I try to stay my last podcast I did, I, we did a lot of stuff on like love and relationships and whatnot. And I try to stay away from that just because it can be a touchy subject, but I am genuinely curious about this as, as a creator and as somebody looking to get married shortly, what is, I guess, what is that like? Like the ask of your partner as a creative person where it's like, okay, I've just had this moment where I, I am so full of emotion. I am so full of creativity. Like I just have to get this out. And like you said, like she is not, she's just like, yeah, like cool dude. But obviously more supportive than that. I'd imagine. Otherwise you wouldn't be married mm -hmm. to her. Uh, so what is, I guess, how do you navigate that balance of like, okay, this is something like, let me go drop all of this on my partner. And like, this is worth like making her like take this on and like, here me out about this versus the times where you're like, I think this is a good idea or I'm excited about this. And like, but you know, let me, let me not burden her with this. Cause I, 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 I need to reserve that for another time. Like, how do you, how do you make that balance? Well, I think it's important that everyone has the talk. We've, we've had the talk. I sat her down and I said, look, this is how weird artists work. Sometimes we're, we've been thinking about something for so long and bouncing on our head. We don't know how to make it work. And literally the second we open our mouths and try and describe it to someone else, we realize how simple a problem it, it is <laughs> and it all makes sense. So sometimes I'm just going to explain something that you have no idea what I'm talking about. You don't have to respond at all. You don't have to understand what I'm saying, but the process of me trying to make you understand is going to fix all the problems. And you, and then you just nod your head, pretend like you, you solved the problem and I will think that you did. <laughs> and she's like, all right, got it. Well, that, that is sage fucking wisdom right there, man. How long have you guys been married? Uh, we've been married about seven years. All right. I, that's tried and true advice that I, I can put that one into practice. I appreciate that. You were, you were helping the mm -hmm. next seven years of my life immensely. Uh, the question I usually wrap on, which you might've just given me the answer to, uh, who have you met doing this? That's kind of like changed your life, whether that's for the better or for the worse. Um, well, I'm, what I love about traveling the world is just meeting everywhere I go. I meet new people, even people that I meet for a few hours that I still think about people that I've, I've made comics about whether I actually make it about them or just apply something I learned about them to a fictional character. Like I, I have so many people that I care about all over the world that some of which I don't know their names, people that I'll never see again. I have no way of contacting. Um, I just love, collaborating and talking and having experiences with so many different types of people. 
So does that mean I'm going to end up at a book someday? Maybe. <laughs> you never know. Well, I, I would greatly you appreciate know, that. It, yeah, well, you, you never know. That with my friends, you might just get a, a, an email that says, oh, I got you a book deal. <laughs> and then uh, who knows? I'm, I mean, listen, we can do an audio drama. We can do a book. I, I feel like there's a, a lot of things for us in the future to, to explore here. You're you stumbling through. You don't have a lot of characters with dread. So I, I feel like we can we can diversify your 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 backgrounds here. We're going to help you out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, I got one. I got one in Aki Alliance. So it's a, a uh, she's an 11 year old girl, though. So <laughs> I don't know if you could. I, play her in anything but <laughs> yeah my uh my voice register doesn't go up that high i don't think all right <laughs> uh i want to bring you back and do random people here at the end our favorite little segment but before we wrap this up uh i always i i, I like to ask this question leave it open form some people are more positive some people are more negative don't want to touch on it some people do uh but how do you i guess view folks who I, I guess the way I would I write this down is like how do you view members who are the antithesis of that group? And I guess when I think of storytellers, like the antithesis of that, I guess by nature is the audience, but not necessarily the audience, but people who don't find value, I guess in in things like storytelling and in, in that creative art form of like, well, it's it's not music, it's not a film, it like you're just telling stories. Like, why is that important? And I guess like I I always like to end by giving people a, a, a platform to you know answer that question. Like, why is what you do? Why is how you identify? Why is like the way you live your life like more more or less like valuable than others? Or like, why is it important? Well, what I one amazing thing about storytelling is that, uh, you know, literally everyone tells stories. Even people, mm. if someone says they hate, if someone's like, that Ryan guy is such an idiot that he thinks stories are important, they're telling a story about what an idiot I am. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and so there's literally, it's impossible to go through life without telling stories. And it's important, like, if, well, uh, you know, I've, I've been involved in the the Risk podcast, and they they do storytelling workshops for businesses where like they teach people storytelling so that it can apply to like, um, you know, sales calls or team meetings or how to express things to uh, you know your a boss expressing things to a team about how he wants things wants things done, and just stories are how we communicate. Mm. And if there's if there's someone that says they hate stories, they're just thinking of an art form that they're not particularly interested in. And that, that's fine. You don't have to be interested in any art form. I love making comics, but it's not that I, because I think comics are better than anything else, or I think being on stage is better than anything else. I think just, you know, two old men sitting at the bar talking about the old days, uh, someone just, uh, people complaining about their neighbors, you know, people gossiping, that's all stories. And I, I love that stories are being told. And I hope that people uh, share more of their stories, because the more we know about other people, uh, the more we understand other people, the better the world gets. I certainly could not agree more. That was literally, you, you pretty much just wrote the 45 second trailer for this podcast like the idea of this podcast is like i want to tell as many types of people's stories as possible and to kind of give uh 
I guess, some human element to all of these types of people that we, you know, you hear about or you read about or you see in a headline. But it's like, I don't know any of those people. Like, I, I don't personally know any graphic novelist or graphic artist on, on the scale or style that you work in. Like, I know plenty of people who make, you know, logos and merch design and things of that nature, but I don't know anyone who uses illustration to tell stories for a living. And it's just like, I... I, I think there are a lot of misconceptions or preconceived notions that people have whenever they hear any label, and the ability to frame that story in a humanizing way, I, I think, does a lot for people, uh, and, or at least I'm, I'm banking on it because that's that's what I'm making my life about. Uh, so with that said, we're, we're going to leave it there. I do want to bring you back for my f- uh, favorite segment of this podcast called Random People. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here, and then I'll bring you back, and we'll wrap with that. All right. fuck are these people? Shut up. This is my favorite part of the podcast. Internet. Are you ready? It's time for random people. So we're back. We're going to play random people. Uh... And so the way this works for all of you listening at home, if this is your first time listening, uh, I have a list of 100 different types of people here. Ryan is going to pick three numbers, one to 100. I'm going to give Ryan those three types of people. He's going to tell me three things about those people, the first three things that pop into his head. And then I get one follow-up question on each of those. And then we'll send Ryan on his way to go make way more important art than this podcast. Uh, So without much further ado, Ryan, what are your three numbers? Let's go with uh, 37... 68 and uh, 51. 51. Okay. Uh, we'll start with 37. We'll put 30 seconds on the clock here. Uh, oh, this is, a, this, is a, this is a good one because we didn't get a chance to talk about this. I like talking about this with a lot of people. So 30 seconds on the clock. Tell me your first three thoughts about drug dealers. Drug dealers. Um, they got jobs they're doing. Uh, typically, uh, they have very bad, uh, reputations and do very bad things, but that's because of the way the world is set up in, uh, you know, they, you know, so, uh, forcing people that shouldn't maybe be in power over other people run in those positions. And I, I don't do drugs, but I wish the job was legal so that uh, a lot of horrible things didn't happen. That's I. I felt like you 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 played the right side of that one very well. Uh, well done. Uh, <laughs> Fifty one skipping down to uh, this is this is really uncanny how this show tends to work out that people's not, whatever they pick and I shuffle the list every time uh, the the three identities people end up with on this list at least one of them always kind of relates back to something about their identity. Uh, so I know we didn't get a chance to talk much about race in this podcast. 
but you had mentioned uh, in our pre-interview, and obviously you mentioned uh, earlier when we were kind of going through the autobiographical portion, your father moved here from Mexico, you're a quarter Mexican, uh, and number 51 on the list is Mexican people. So give me your first three things or three things you want to explain to people who are ignorant about Mexican people or Mexican-American people, uh, the three things you'd like to share with them. Well, the thing is, growing up, you know, I'm a quarter Mexican, but I uh, grew up uh, very much having a, a lot of white privilege and only really knowing about a lot of Mexican culture from American movies. So when I moved to Mexico later in my life, was very surprised by how amazing it was. I lived in this town where like, it was the cleanest place I've ever been in my life. Everything was a World Heritage Site. And like after it rained, people would go under the sewers to scrub them clean from the rain. And it was the most stunning, beautiful place I've ever lived and kind of made me realize, oh, even a a quarter Mexican boy can have these horrible uh, racist ideas of what Mexico's like. Um, I will say that despite being quarter Mexican, living in Mexico, everyone there made it very clear that I am not Mexican. I'm not allowed (laughs) to say that I'm Mexican. And uh, I'm a gringo. Fair enough. I I've I look forward to getting a chance to travel back to Africa at some point in my life. But I being just even from the northeast, like when I go down south to like places where there's actual like populations of black people, not just like one or two of us sprinkled across a, a community or two or like trapped in one neighborhood. It is jarring to me how many people just like very obviously like point out that I am also half white and that I'm also from the north and I'm also very out of touch with a lot of black culture. Uh, and it's just like, yeah, no, like you were you are not one of us. Please sit here quietly and learn uh and it's a, a very humbling experience that i, I don't know I've, I've appreciated every time uh the last one on our list i guess we're going with a little bit of a darker turn i know i said all those nice things about how these typically correlate to our guests i hope this does not correlate to you uh abusive spouses i hope you do not have one or that you aren't one uh but what are your your first three thoughts on abusive spouses uh, luckily, I do not have one and am not one. Uh, I think abusive spouses are people that uh, need to be uh, gotten away from. Uh, I think that people in abusive situations need to get out of that situation. I think the people who are abusive spouses need to get help, but that help should not come from the people they're abusing because it's not their responsibility to fix a broken person. The broken person needs to fix themselves and the abused person needs to get to safety. I couldn't agree more. Uh, as I mentioned at the top, I, I get the way this works. I get one follow-up question on each of these. So I guess I want to work backwards here and start with that one. Uh, that I, I don't, as somebody who's been, uh, I guess, close to a lot of, a lot of domestic abuse scenarios and a lot of maybe not abusive spouses, but definitely abusive partners. Uh, that idea that people need to get away from that is often tied to, I, I don't know, kind of like this victim shamey idea of, oh, why didn't you just leave him? Right. And I, I think what you said there is very important that they need to get away and that the other, the abusive person needs to get help and that those, that help cannot be provided by the person who's still there. Uh, so I guess my follow up question would be in that scenario, like, what do you, what do you think the, the best out is because I, I guess that's always the hardest question is like, how do you get out? Uh, and I know that's, uh, I, I guess a tough question. That's why I want to start with that one and we can work back towards nicer things here towards the end. <laughs> yeah. I think the most important thing is to say that there is no one way to get out and mm. some 
rando dude on a podcast that has never <laughs> been in that situation is the worst person to give that advice because every situation is wildly different. I don't want to minimize what someone's going through to say, you know, I, w- I don't want to, by saying they need to get out doesn't mean why didn't you get out? Right. It means, uh, you know, find your way to do that. And I hope they have the find somehow the resources that they can have to, to get out of that situation. But, you know, an important part of that is not being blamed for their situation, making it worse. Um, I know there are resources out there uh, and hopefully people have people they can talk to to give advice on how to best use those resources. Makes sense. I I would I I should have prefaced this. I guess I'd, it's funny because now I'm I'm nine episodes into recording this, and uh, I I'm like oh like people have an idea how this goes, and I forget like I'm recording this before it releases, so nobody's heard any of these yet. Uh, but the the whole purpose of the the random people segment essentially is like making sure that like we get uh, I guess some people who are not connected to those types of people talking about different types of people, uh, and also that we have a chance to kind of platform people that you know in discussions about certain populations that we won't necessarily have people on. Like I I don't know that I'm interviewing any abusive spouses anytime soon, or at least not till I become a way better interviewer and feel pretty confident that I can platform people in a safe way and like tell those stories uh but i i i appreciate kind of the the clear-eyed view on that uh i guess i want to move on uh to mexican folks because i i think one of the things you touched on there about you know the the misconceptions of mexico growing up here in america uh and it being one of the cleanest places you've ever been i've i've heard that from pretty much everybody i've known to to go back to africa i've heard that from a lot of my middle eastern friends who grew up in america and then they you know go back home to visit family and they're like I, I thought everything here was supposed to be like ruins and there's just like these beautiful cityscapes. Uh, we didn't get a chance to kind of dive into it. So I guess my one follow-up question to you would be, how did you, how did you end up living in Mexico? And like, I, I guess, what was your, what was your experience like being this, uh, uh, I guess, uh, <laughs> gringo, identifiable gringo, but like in search of some, I'd imagine some like connection to like homeland and ethnicity. Well, it was just the thing that it was something I always wanted to do. And it, it was when I first went full time as an artist and I realized I'm going to work through the Internet, I can live anywhere. So the place I really want to go to is Mexico. Mm. And what I decided to do is just move there, rent a house. And I announced on the Internet, uh, I'm going to rent a house. If any artists want to come live there for free, they can. Uh, I called it the cartoon commune. <laughs> and uh, so I, that's kind of what I did. I just um, showed up and kind of moved around until I found a place. The plan was to do a, you know, road trip around the country first and see what place I fell in love with until I found out how expensive it is to travel around Mexico. Um, buses are very much not cheap. Hmm. So like on the third city, uh, luckily I fell in love with that city. Uh, there was a, a local, uh, another web cartoonist named uh, Vlad uh, Estrada had, uh, we think that we might be related, but we're not entirely sure because he's from my grandfather's hometown. Huh. And the place I ended the place I ended up with uh, ended up luckily being my grandfather's hometown. So that's where we lived. Uh, I rented a, a building that was literally um, part of like my street was a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So I had this beautiful place looking out over the old cathedrals, and it was just really nice. Uh, amazing place to to travel and to live um i i don't like traveling uh 
across there because like I said it's very expensive to travel and also the one thing about Mexico is that when the Spanish went and built cities they basically built the same city everywhere they went <laughs> so I'd be like I'm getting stir crazy I need to do a road trip and I'd spend like $200 on a bus ticket and get out and be like wait a minute that's my house <laughs> someone else is there there's my bread shop there's the there's the cathedral there's my park everything just literally on? literally a cookie cutter yeah, like, version of the it's my house but i'm not allowed to go inside so i guess i'll just spend two two hundred dollars to go back and go in the one that i live in but <laughs> living living there was amazing and uh i would love to go back sometime awesome i mexico is definitely on my bucket list personally but i i guess the more people i talk to the uh, the more different ideas of what mexico is like i get i, I guess mm-hmm. like there there are people you know my father had told me many stories about mexico i've had you know plenty of friends who vacation there in the resort life in mexico i've had friends who lived in various cities in mexico uh and i'm trying to figure out like knowing how expensive travel is like if i'm going to do my mexican experience like how, how the best way to go about that and like i i'm sure i will be back in touch with you probably in the next coming years uh before i, I make say that. just zip right into zacatecas that's, <laughs> that's my spot all right zacatecas mexico zacatecas mm-hmm. uh, with a z right or smack or dab in the middle okay easy enough uh, and, uh, the last one I wanted to follow up with was on drug dealers. Cause it, you seemed way out of your depth there. So you'd mentioned you never, like, you don't do drugs any of that. Did you ever, did you ever like smoke nope. weed in college or anything? Nope. I don't, I've, I've never even uh, had alcohol. I'm a nerd. So you are like the world's lone artist without intoxications or inhibitions. huh? Like, I don't even drink coffee. I don't know. I don't get it. <laughs> I, I get one of those things that like identify as a, as a cartoonist, but I'm probably gonna be kicked out of the club for admitting I don't drink coffee. (laughs) Nothing. Well, I promise you, I will cut this part of the interview out. If you get enough slack for it on Reddit from all of your fellow cartoonists. Uh, I, I wrap up every one of these episodes by asking the same question, which is who do you want to hear this story? You, unlike most of my guests have probably heard your story or your stories in your case, heard by way more people than most of the people who come on this show. Uh, so who are you hoping gets to hear this one? Oh, you cut out again. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I, I guess just to wrap up here, I, I ask everybody, who do you, who are you hoping hears this episode and kind of hears your story? Because obviously, you know, you do this for a living. You, you tell your story all the time. You've had a chance to tell versions of your stories a lot of different places. Who are you hoping gets a chance to hear this version of you? Um, well, this is a more difficult question. You know, there's people that have stories about, you know, sur- you know surviving, you know, tragedies and uh people that survive uh things i'm just a dude who makes silly comics so when i go on a podcast it's more about like i hope someone listens it and reads my comics so i don't have a a very uh important answer to this but i i do yeah i mean i as someone that tells stories i hope that people that have better stories than i do you know i i have a lot of stories about things going wrong for me but you know, the, the end product is always me thinking, well, that was cool. But I, there are people out there that have stories that can really change people's lives and can show people they're not alone. And I hope that those people uh, say, if this guy who just does dumb things and then makes comics about them can tell his stories, I can tell my story. Um, whether you just post about it on, uh, post about it on Twitter, if you, um, uh, go on a, uh, find an open mic, 
uh, find out if risk is in, is in your town, find out if the moth is in your town and just get on stage and tell a story or just tell a story you've never told to someone that you care about. Uh, that, that's what I basically care about is people getting their stories out there. So that's, uh, that's who I hope listens and does something about it. Well, in that case, fellow storytellers, or I should say storytellers to be people with a, a first time story to share. If you happen to be out there listening, and I know you are, because in my opinion, everybody listens to the Those People's Podcast, please be sure to check out Ryan Estrada. Where can they find you? Uh, RyanEstrada.com obviously is the easiest place that any other place in particular people should look for you. Yeah, basically, if you go to RyanEstrada.com, there's links to everything that I do, all my upcoming books. I hope people check out Band Book Club, which is the one I mentioned with my wife, who uh, she, uh, in the 1980s in South Korea, was in uh, basically a band book club of people who could have been, who were like tortured and arrested, and she got interrogated by the KCIA and risked being thrown in prison for life to read books they weren't supposed to. Um, I have a book called Occulted coming out that's about my friend Amy Rose growing up in a cult uh, one town over and during the same period as Heaven's Gate. Uh, I got a book called Student Ambassador coming out about a little uh, Mexican-American boy uh, having adventures around the world. And so I hope people uh, go check those out. I I'm, no, I most certainly will. I hope all of you listening at home do. Uh, if you are a social media person, you can also follow him at Ryan Estrada on Twitter or RyanEstrada.com spelled out on Instagram. Uh, I do suggest checking out the website though, because there is like so much great content. Like in so, even if you're just like skeptical, there's so much good free content that Ryan is just like giving away to. Like I I truly don't understand it until we had this hour and a half interview where he pretty much just kept telling me how much he doesn't care about making money and cares more about telling stories. So I guess that checks out. Uh, but I would highly recommend checking out the website. There's a lot of good stuff there. Uh, as always, I am very thankful for you doing this. Uh, thank you, because like I said, you're you're one of a kind kind of in this season of uh, episodes for me, and I'm, I'm very excited to share this story and uh, very excited that you, know, you carved out some time for me and, and felt this was worth doing, man. So thanks for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you to all you out there listening and supporting the show. And until next time, I am Mitch Keynes, and we are all those people. Most people are wrong, most people are right You don't have to want it so bad You could just put it back Don't have to be Thank you for checking out this episode of Those People, a podcast with people about people. 
Really hope you tune in for the rest of this season, including going back and checking out some of our episodes from Volume 1 of this season, focusing on political people, and in particular Democrats who are running for Congress. Got a few quick housekeeping notes here for you. If you listened to this episode and you really enjoyed it, please, please, please rate and review the show wherever it is that you listen. Really helps other people find the show, and that's pretty essential to us being able to do a second season. Uh, If you happen to be an Apple or a Podchaser user, those places in particular really help drive our listenership. So if you could, definitely leave us a rating or a review there. If you really love the episode, or you just want to support the show in general, there are a number of ways that you can do just that now. You can head on over to anchor.com slash those people slash support to make a recurring monthly donation to help keep our little show going. You can also log on to mitchgains.com slash store where you can buy one of our creative people t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, or anything else that you happen to find in the store that catches your eye. And even if you hated the episode, you might want to take a look there because we have some pretty cool shit. Also, if you just want to buy me a drink or something next time I'm in your city, that's cool with me too. If you have feedback for the show, I'm also all ears. My Twitter DMs are always open, and you can also email me at mitchgaines at gmail.com. If you prefer speaking to writing, obviously I do, that's why I have a podcast, you can leave us a voice message at the link in the show notes here. Your feedback, your questions, and your opinions may be used in a future episode, just be noted of that. Special thanks to East Boston Public Library for allowing us to record several of these episodes there on location, including our interviews here with Anjan, Jackie, and a bunch more in this particular volume. Also want to give a thank you to Amy Bazoon Artea, as well as the Justice Boys for our outro and our intro music, respectively. Both of those songs are fittingly titled Those People, and we'll post them links in the show notes if you want to find out where to find them. Lastly, most specially, a thank you to our executive producer, Kayla Shetland, without whom, as I always say, and I mean this quite literally each and every time, none of this would be possible. And also a final thank you to those people out there who've supported this project from its earliest days, including some of our previous guests like Brianna Wu and Ken Mejia Beal, and friends of the show, including Irvin Bailey, Crystal Roloff, Shelbo the God, and countless others that I'm missing. I'm Mitch Gaines, and I appreciate you, whoever you are out there, for listening to this episode of Those People, a podcast with people about people. See you next week.